Well, good morning. Pastor Harold gave you a little spoiler for today. We're going to be in John 18 and 19, and we are going to talk about Jesus' death, his crucifixion. So you got a little spoiler for both weeks here if you haven't read ahead yet. Uh, but good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. That is uh, typically the week before Easter we celebrate, and that marks in the Bible here, uh, the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life. And we looked at that a few weeks ago in John chapter 12 um, as we lead up to Jesus' death. And if you've missed any of our series in John, you can catch those online and get caught back up. But today we're going to pick up where we left off, night before Jesus' death. Uh, we just saw last week Jesus' high priestly prayer where he took some time to pray for his disciples before his death as well as for himself and even for all future believers, including us. Um, and, you know, we're about to see him face an agonizing, humiliating uh, death that he's going to face. And we continue seeing the events that are leading towards it in these two passages. And I think it's good that we look back and kind of remember why John wrote this gospel and kind of get the theme of it. So we remember John wrote this gospel so we could see Jesus as God's son, which we'll see that today in the passage again. And he gave us kind of the theme of the whole book in John chapter 20, verse 31. He said, But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And we'll see that verse in the coming couple messages. But today we're going to see just that thought, that Jesus goes through the worst night and day really ever that someone could go through so that we can have life. Now, Jesus' ministry while he was here on earth, it lasted about three and a half years long, and it all led up to this very point that we're going to see. Uh, his reason for coming to earth was to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and mine, so that we could ultimately have life in him. And Jesus is about to go through just the worst night and day imaginable. He's going to be betrayed by one of his disciples, he's going to have friends abandon him. He's going to go through uh, being beaten and whipped and go through all sorts of pain and a gruesome death. And he does it uh, all for us. And tonight, as, today as we look at this, I want to do something a little different. I want to do the ending of the sermon first, and then we'll come back to the beginning of it. So it's a little backwards. We're, we're going to end the sermon first and then go to the beginning of it. So keep with me through it. But I want us to focus on the whole end point of why Jesus came. So as we're looking at everything he went through leading up to his death, we can then uh, remind ourselves of these end points. And so as we pick up, we're going to look at John 19, starting in verse 17 first. And we won't read all these verses because we have a lot today. Uh, we'll summarize some and read some as we go. But we begin to see the crucifixion. So we're going to start at the end of our passage first today. We pick up in verse 17, Jesus is carrying his own cross. We'll see everything that leads up to this in a moment and why that's kind of significant. But we then see in verses 18 through 24, the, the Romans mocking and humiliating Jesus. Uh, above his cross, they write, Hail, King of the Jews. That in of itself was mocking and degrading to him. You'll see why. The soldiers gambled for his clothes, for the robes that they gave him. The whole thing was just a mocking because crucifixion to the Romans wasn't just a method of execution, but it was also they wanted to degrade and humiliate the person going through it as much as possible. And so Jesus, as he's nailed 
to this cross, a piece of wood, having gone through all the beatings and everything that he's gone through leading up to this, we still see him in control of the situation, worried about others. Uh, In verse 25 and 27, he looks at John, his disciple, who authored the book and says, take care of Mary, his mother. And the Bible says he took her in even that night as his own. So Jesus is still making sure he's controlling the situation, but also caring about other people around him. And then we get to verse 28 and 29. Jesus is given a drink. He says he's thirsty. This would all be part of prophecy in the Old Testament that would tell us this would happen. And they give him sour wine or basically vinegar to drink. Not very satisfying at all. And then we see verse 30 and look at what the Bible says. John 19 verse 30 says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Jesus dies. This is what he came to earth to do for this very moment. And as his death was being finalized, everything that was going on, kind of some background of the people of the time, the Sabbath was coming up the next day. They can't work on the Sabbath. So there's Jesus and the two thieves next to him being crucified. They can't take their bodies down on the Sabbath. So they've got to have them die before that. They've got to have this be done. And crucifixion being very gruesome the way it was, a slow, painful death, all the weight on your body, they couldn't breathe, so they'd have to push themselves up on their feet to breathe. And so they came to the ruler and said, can we break their legs and help speed this thing up? So they did. Again, this is morbid, right? If you can't breathe, you're going to die. So they're like, let's speed this thing up. And prophecy, though, said that Jesus wouldn't have any broken bones. So they come to Jesus, and we just saw verse 30. He's already dead. So instead, to make sure, they decide to run a spear through his side to make sure. And they find out he is, in fact, dead. They remove the body and bury it at the end of the chapter, verse 38 and 42. We see a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He is called a secret disciple because he was fearful of the Jewish religious leaders. We also see him remove the body and bury it with the help of Nicodemus. They wrap Jesus, anoint his body, and place him in a brand new tomb. And that's it. Jesus is dead. He died on the cross uh, for our sins, and he's now buried. And chapter 19 ends there. The good news is, I'll give you a spoiler alert. You still have to come back next week and hear all the details of it, because it's a great story. So promise me you'll come back next week. Great. All right, I'll give you a spoiler alert. Jesus doesn't stay dead. Okay? Okay, great. There's a spoiler alert. I hope I didn't ruin Pastor Harold's message for next week, but Jesus doesn't stay dead. He is, uh, he rises on the third day. He defeats sin. He defeats death. His whole mission of coming was for that very reason, because his ultimate sacrifice was paying for our sins so we could have forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. You see, God is a just and righteous God, and he demands a payment, judgment for our sins. And that payment that he requires is death. That means separation from God after we die on this earth in a place called hell. But God offers a way of salvation from that. And it's through Jesus, what we just saw right there, what he did right there. And listen, here's what you need to know. If you believe in Jesus and ask him to save you, he will. And I told you we'd end or we'd start with the ending of the message, and normally we end with some takeaways, so here they are. If you want to sum up everything we're going to talk about, Jesus died so we can have forgiveness of sins, 
So there's two things you can do in light of that. If you haven't ever accepted him, believe in him and accept him. And if you have, it should motivate us to share it. Now, again, I said, here's the ending, so please don't tune me out, but stick with it as we kind of time travel back to the beginning of chapter 18, and we see everything Jesus went through this night before his death. Think of it with those takeaways in mind. Look at it as if you haven't trusted in him, see all the reasons why you should. And if you have, see all the reasons why it should motivate you to tell others about him. And as we begin into this, there's a lot that goes on the night of Jesus' death, so it'll be broken up into some different scenes that we'll see different things take place. And the first one is the arrest of Jesus. It starts out in John 18, verse 1 through 11, we see his arrest. And the first thing we see is Judas, one of his old disciples, betraying him. Jesus finishes that high priestly prayer. He finishes praying for us. And him and the disciples cross over the Valley of Kidron, and they're going over to uh, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane that is there. And uh, we see Jesus pray once more there as well in some of the other Gospels, record that account. And as that happens, Judas comes into the garden as well. And we see Judas in some of the other Gospels accounts. He greets Jesus with a kiss to let the people with him know, hey, this is the guy we're after. And Judas brings with him what the Bible here calls a Roman cohort. That is, he brings a little mini army with him. Um, And if we look at some historical context about a cohort, that could be up to a thousand soldiers, could be 200 to 600, probably in context closer to, they think, 200. They also brought with them officers of the temple and the chief priest. So those are the guys that are actually making the arrest uh, before they will first take Jesus to trial. And regardless, Judas brought basically a mini army with him. He brought soldiers. He brought some officers. They were ready for resistance because they thought Jesus and his disciples were ready to fight. Remember, they're still thinking the thought is that Jesus is coming to be an earthly king, to set up a kingdom here. And for Rome, for the Roman soldiers, that'd be a problem because that means somebody's trying to get rid of their king, so they're going to have to fight. So they're ready for war if, if necessary. And you know, the sad thing that sticks out to me here, though, with Judas' betrayal is Judas was with Jesus for all of his ministry. Judas was there for... The miracles as an eyewitness, he was there to see the healings. He heard all of Jesus' teachings firsthand. And yet in Acts, we see Judas take his own life, suffering from the guilt, all without any mention of asking for forgiveness, repentance. And Jesus wants us to know that he offers forgiveness of our sins. You'll see that in the comparison with Peter later on and in what Peter ends up doing But that's why Jesus came to earth. That was the whole mention why we did our takeaways first so we could see what Jesus' goal of coming here was in this. You know, we've all messed up, but none of us have to take all of that guilt on ourselves and hold it on ourselves because Jesus offers us forgiveness for those sins. He offers us a chance to have a restored relationship with God, a chance at new life. All you have to do is accept it. Jesus, while this is all going on, I told you earlier, he has control of the situation. He also protects his disciples in verses 4 through 9. Uh, the, the cohort, the army, Judas, all these guys come and, and uh, Jesus questions them. And he says, verse 4, who are you looking for? 
And Jesus obviously knew who they were looking for. John mentions it in verse 4. He says, Jesus knows all things. Jesus is God. God's omniscient. God knows all things. So Jesus does too. He knows who they're coming for. But Jesus is trying to get a specific answer out of them. That Jesus, when they say, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, I am he. Jesus responds to their response, and he twice makes them say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And that's significant because they're looking for one person, not Jesus and these 11 disciples, but they're looking for Jesus. And Jesus wants them to acknowledge they have no authority to take the disciples with them, just him. It's interesting to note because in the midst of being arrested, Jesus is protecting his disciples. Jesus even demands in verse 8 that they let the disciples go. And typically someone being arrested doesn't have the right to make all that many demands. Um, But Jesus' words carry power here. Well, he spoke the words, I am he. That was used several times, over 30 in in the Gospels here, where he is declaring himself God. And these words carry so much power, so forceful when he said it, that Judas and all of the soldiers with him fell backwards on the ground. And you see, there's some more significance to Jesus' command not to take the disciples. Look at verse 9 here as well. Uh, The Bible says, To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Uh, We see that earlier in John, as well as just back in chapter 17, Jesus said, "I, I lost not one of the disciples, except for the son of perdition, destruction, Judas. But he didn't really lose him. That was a fulfillment of scripture as well. So he's fulfilling scripture here, but he's also protecting the disciples from being arrested. And perhaps Jesus knew that him being arrested and his death was going to be traumatic enough for the disciples at this moment that maybe they couldn't handle themselves being arrested or beaten or facing execution at this moment. And I think it's incredibly encouraging that Jesus takes a moment to look out for his disciples as he's being arrested and what he's facing, just like he took time to pray for us before all of this well and to take care of his mother because Jesus truly had others, us in mind, as he was going to the cross to die for us. And in the end of this section during the arrest, we see one more event, and it's usually one of our favorite because it has Peter, and he's one of my favorite people because it's always exciting when Peter's around. And so Peter is ready for Jesus to be king. He's ready to get rid of Rome. He is excited. He's ready to die for Jesus, and he sees Judas. I'm sure that just infuriates him to see Judas come in to betray Jesus. And so he is going to take out this mini Roman army on his own if he has to. So he pulls out his sword, and he sees the first person he can swing it at, a man named Malchus, who was a servant, and he lops off Malchus's ear. Now, I'm sure, I would think, he wouldn't be intending to go for his ear. Probably the head, and he probably had terrible aim. So Peter, who has terrible aim with the sword, gets the ear and the head mixed up, was going to fight off the whole Roman army on his own. Love Peter. He had enthusiasm. Jesus then heals Malchus's ear, And he looks at Peter and says, hey, you got this all wrong. Remember, Jesus mentions this cup cannot pass in verse 11. And in the Old Testament, that was significant. That was talking about God's judgment or God's wrath. And remember, God being a just God who needs there to be judgment for sin, someone had to pay for your sin and my sin. So Jesus reminds Peter, hey, I've got to face 
this cup, this judgment. I've got to go through this or else you're going to have to pay for your own sin. And that wouldn't have had a happy ending like the salvation Jesus was offering us. So Jesus reminded him, remember, this is not an earthly kingdom. I'm coming to bring you salvation. And Jesus is now arrested. They take him into custody and they bring him in for the interrogation. And this happens through verse 12 through 40. And Jesus is brought before several different people here. The first one is a guy named Annas in verse 12 through 23. And Annas, he apparently used to be the high priest, but the Roman governor removed him. The Jewish people didn't really like that because they don't like Rome. They don't think Rome has the power to mess with their uh, religious people. And so they don't really like this. So Annas, though, still holds some power because he's the first one they go to. He's still kind of calling some shots here. And it might be because five of, history tells us, five of Annas's sons were high priests at one point in time. And the current high priest is his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who we'll see in just a moment. But I want us to notice that there's kind of two different trials that take place. The first one is the, with the Jewish religious leaders, and then he goes before the Roman leaders. And that's important because the Jewish religious leaders want to execute Jesus. They want him dead, but they don't hold the legal power to do that because the Romans said, hey, we're in charge. You guys can't kill people, whoever you want. Only we can do that. So if they wanted this to happen, they had to convict Jesus. Then they had to take him to the Roman courts and have them convict him. And so he's going to have two different trials here. And to kind of make it make sense, because there's a lot that goes on, and uh, John doesn't uh, give a lot of details about a couple of these. So the first part of his trial is he goes kind of informally with Annas. Now, this probably gave some time for the, the Jewish religious leaders to all get together. They're called the Sanhedrin. That's their uh, religious legislative council. So they get them together. Then they take Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin. And then, after that, they take him before Pilate. We see that later on here in John and in Matthew. And then, John doesn't show us this, but Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke 26 shows us he goes before Herod. This is uh, uh, Pilate, his uh, uh, kind of higher-up boss. And then he goes back to Pilate, which we'll see the end here. So that's kind of the two stages of Jesus's trials here. And it's interesting to note that Herod, Pilate, these Roman rulers probably wouldn't have typically uh, been around Jerusalem at the same time. But because the Jewish Passover was going on and they wanted to keep the peace in the area and it seemed like historically there was some, some uh, tensions here, Rome brought in the big guns to keep everything under control. It also seems like God is sovereign and he's working out his will to make sure everyone he needs to be there for this event, Jesus to die on the cross for us, is there as well. And as Jesus is going before Annas, we see Peter and another disciple go with him. Uh, the disciple's unnamed, and based on how he's writing, we probably assume it's John. Uh, but we then see Peter's first denial. Verse 17, remember Jesus predicted Peter was going to deny him. Uh, G- Peter said he was ready to die with Jesus and fight for him, and Jesus said, you're not going to make it through the night before you deny me three times. So look at verse 17. Uh, The Bible says, then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And so Peter says, I'm not. This is first denial of Jesus. And in verse 24, Annas sends Jesus now down to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. 
That's the official high priest. And we don't see this interaction in John, but Matthew has more of the details. And we see in Matthew, Jesus' beard get plucked, them treat him unfairly during this trial. Um, and really in both phases of the Jewish trial, he's treated unfairly. Um, their law stated that they had to have witnesses that would come forth and prove that he was guilty. And Annas had none of them. Jesus called for them, and that got him smacked. But then before Caius, we see the witnesses that they do have can't even get their story straight. Talk about some collusion there. So Jesus is treated unfairly there as well. And we go back outside while this is all happening in a courtyard. There's Peter, as well as several servants and officers around a fire. In verse 25, we see Peter's second denial. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it, said, I'm I'm not. He lied again, said he wasn't a follower of Jesus. And then in 26 and 27, we see the last two. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. This is the final fulfillment of Jesus's prediction that Peter would deny him three times. Peter is questioned here by a relative of Malchus, the guy whose ear he cut off earlier. I can think of how awkward that would have been. He's like, wait, didn't you just cut my cousin, brother, whoever it was, ear off in the garden? I saw you with the sword. And Peter's like, nope, that's wrong guy. You got that totally wrong. Not me. Peter denied Jesus knowing he followed him for three and a half years. And you know, it can be difficult for us to say what our answer would be in a situation like that, if we're asked a question in a difficult situation. But think about it for Jesus. On top of being arrested, his closest friends and followers all abandon, and one of them even denies being one of his followers. So now, the Jewish court, though, believes we've got enough to convict Jesus. So we're going to send him before Pilate. Pilate's kind of like the governor in the area. He's the Roman official they got to send him to. And they send him to Pilate's headquarters. The Bible calls it the Praetorium. And the Jews can't go in there because it's a Gentile's house that would make them ceremoniously unclean. And then they couldn't take the Passover feast that night. So now the religious leaders love to follow the laws that are convenient for them. We'll see that more in a minute. But Jesus comes before Pilate. And so Pilate Right off the bat, verse 29, he's like, okay, what, what is the charge? What's he guilty of? Look at what he says, verse 29. Um, Pilate says, therefore Pilate went out to them and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered it and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. If the Jewish people would have put him to death themselves anyways, the religious leaders, they probably would have stoned him. The Bible says Jesus was going to be crucified on a cross. That's the way the Romans executed people. So it was significant for Rome to be the one to do the execution. But Pilate says, hey, why don't you guys just take him? This is, you know, your problem, not mine. And they're like, no, you've got to do it because we can't kill him and we want him to be executed. So Pilate then says, okay, goes in and questions Jesus in verse 33. Pilate says, okay, are you the Jewish king? Because if he says he's the king, they got him. That's all they need. That would be a threat to Rome and we can take him out. They'd be good to go. 
And so Jesus says, okay, where'd you come up with this accusation? Is this yours? Why don't you bring witnesses to prove that I'm the king? He's kind of challenging him. And Pilate's like, whoa, I'm not Jewish. Verse 33, you're your own, your religious leaders are saying this, not me. And Jesus responds to him by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. In verse 34, he's saying, this is not a political thing. I'm not trying to kick Rome out. This is a spiritual thing. If the kingdom was of earth, sure, they'd fight. But Jesus wasn't here to kick Rome out. He was here to die for sin. And so Pilate now thinks, okay, well, you admitted you're a king. Look at verses 37 and 38. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Got him. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate thinks he's got Jesus, thinks he's caught him, but Jesus says he's here to testify of the truth. And Pilate sort of uh, asked the question for the ages, right? Kind of cynically, sarcastically, and says, okay, well, what's truth? And Pilate probably doesn't believe in the truth of what he's heard. And so the question still begs, what is truth? And in our society, truth is often relative. It's whatever people want it to be. But Jesus mentions truth, and he mentions earlier on in John, he's the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is that Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. He came to earth to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and my sins, and to offer mankind forgiveness and a restored relationship with God and eternal life with God. And all we have to do is believe him and accept him. And that, that is the truth that Jesus was bringing. Throughout the story, though, you see a lot of people not get the truth or deny it. Judas didn't believe the truth. Pilate did not believe the truth. Peter, in the moment, denied the truth. The Jewish leaders and people denied the truth. My question for us is, will we deny the truth, or will we accept it? And so Pilate, trying to end this ordeal in 39 and 40, offers a deal. He says, typically at Passover, I set free another prisoner. So how about I just set free Jesus, and we'll just call it good. But the people don't want that. They Barabbas. And verse 40 tells us Barabbas is a bad guy. It uses the word robber, but that gives the idea of one who seizes plunder. Typically a bad dude, they think maybe closer to like a terrorist or a guerrilla fighter. Not a great guy. Somebody convicted of crimes. And Pilate puts him up and says, which one do you want? And they say, Barabbas. Set him free. The convicted criminal that's a robber and murderer. And we move from this interrogation into a scene where we see Jesus crowned as king, but not in the way it would typically take place. And I want you to know the scenes coming up, including the crucifixion we read already, are, are dark and sad and gruesome at times. But it's ultimately all of what Jesus went through to die on the cross for our sins. And I want us to keep that in mind. As we move into chapter 19, you see verse 1, Jesus is scourged. And I think Pilate is hoping a good old-fashioned public scourging 
would satisfy the people and he could get out of here without killing this guy that he kind of still thinks is innocent. And this was a horribly cruel act the Romans would do. They would tie you up to a post uh, and they would beat him with a whip with typically several leather pieces on it with rocks and glass in it. And they would do this often before execution to weaken and dehumanize the person being killed. So they do this to Jesus and then They mock and humiliate Jesus a little bit more. Look at verses 2 and 3. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. These would have been like 12-inch long thorns. They would have weaved together and put it on his head and dug it into his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. They put that crown of thorns on him. They slapped him some more. They put a purple robe, which would have signified royalty. And then they mocked him, saying, look at this king, this king of the Jews. And so Pilate, in verses 4 through 7, sees Jesus humiliated, beaten, and says, okay, let's see if the people will let him off now after this severe injustice. Pilate still finds no guilt in him, and he brings Jesus up and says, here's your man. And... The people aren't happy yet. The religious leaders shout, crucify him. And Pilate says, you know what, why don't you guys do it then? I I don't want to do this. And they say, well, our law says if somebody claims to be a god, they must die. And Pilate, in verse 18, is now terrified. I think he's bit off more than he can chew. And he's terrified for several reasons. One, the Romans were very superstitious of supernatural powers. They believed in a lot of gods, and they never wanted to make any angry. So he's afraid now that he has made some deity, some god, mad. So he comes into Jesus, and he's like, where are you from? He needs to know if he is going to get some repercussions for making this god mad. But he's not really afraid of Jesus for who he is, or or that he's not saved. We also see him afraid of the Jews in verse 12. Pilate was over the Jewish people, and if he couldn't control them, Rome would find somebody that could. And typically, they didn't just fire people. Wouldn't have ended happily for Pilate. So he's afraid for his job and probably his life. And ultimately, he's afraid of Rome. What would his boss do to him? He's not afraid of missing out on salvation or killing an innocent man, but ultimately, he's afraid of saving himself. And you know, it's a challenging question for us because we we think about the same thing. Do we let fear or worry about getting ahead in life stop us from following the truth, from following Jesus? And Jesus here is then presented before the people as king. Pilate in verse 14 brings him up and says, All right, here's your king. And I don't have the verse on the screen, but I want to read it here for you. Um, In verse 15, the Jews' response So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And here's the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. The people all of a sudden are very loyal and really like Rome and Caesar when it was convenient for them. So now, time and time again, the people, the religious rulers, Pilate, the disciples, they were all giving a chance to do what was right here. But time and time again, not a single person except for Jesus follows through with what they're supposed to do. And now we move into the final scene, the cross, where Jesus died for you and me. Pilate gives Jesus over to be crucified, and after all of that, after being beaten, humiliated, whipped, having his beard plucked out, being spit on. Then verse 17 happens, and they hand Jesus his cross and tell him to carry it up the hill to die on. 
And you know, the people here did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in the truth that he said. We can choose to believe it and accept it and let it motivate us to share it. And as the band comes up, we'll sing one more song as we close. I want to end with this thought. You know, I've personally accepted who Jesus is, believed in him, placed my faith and trust in him, and it motivates me reading these verses, seeing the pain, the torment, the agony, the humiliation he went through. It motivates me to share it with others. You know, there's several ways we can do that. We can tell others what Jesus has done for us. We can share it for them. We can do it really simply. You can take one of our Easter invite cards and invite someone to an Easter service and let them come here next week's message about the resurrection from Pastor Harold and hear more about what Jesus did for them. Will you accept Jesus if you haven't already? Your takeaways again, Jesus died so that we can have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. If you're here and you haven't, you can believe it and accept it. And if you are here and you have done that, you can share the message. Listen, if you haven't already accepted Christ, you can do that right now. It's not a magical prayer or anything that'll save you, but the Bible says if you believe that Jesus is God and that he died for you, all you have to do is call out to him. It can be a short, simple way of something like, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I believe in you. Please save me. You can do that right now. You can talk to me or Pastor Harold after. We'd be happy to share with you more on that, and we'd love to know if you've made that decision. Christians, if you're here and you have done that, I don't think it's too much to say we should step out of our comfort zone and share the gospel and live for him. Christians, let's go ahead and live like we believe Jesus died for us. Let's go ahead and stand, and we'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed with a song. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your sacrifice that we see on the cross, Lord. Lord, just help us to be motivated to share the gospel with those in our life around us. Let others know what you did for us. And Lord, if there's someone here who isn't saved, please let today be the day they accept you. In your name, amen.